Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And today we'll be on New Books Gender Sexuality, New Books German Studies, New Books Genocide Studies, talking with my guest, Professor Anna Heikova. Welcome to our podcast today, Anna. Thank you for joining us. I am so happy to be here. So a little bit about Dr. Heikova. Her book we'll be talking about today is called The Last Ghetto, an Everyday History of Theresienstadt, just published with Oxford University Press 2020. She is an associate professor of modern European continental history at the University of Warwick. She uh, has her dissertation from the University of Toronto, on which the book is based, and it was awarded both the Irma Rosenberg as well as Herbert Steiner Prizes in 2014. Professor Heikova has co-edited the yearbook Theresienstädter Studien und Dokumente between 2006 and 2008, uh, and a special issue of German history on sexuality, Holocaust, stigma appeared online just this summer in 2020. Dr. Heikova has also edited Family Wartime Diaries from the Communist Resistance and the Holocaust. And she has a website, which I think is really interesting for the book, which is called w, which is at www.thelastghetto.com. So I want to introduce um, the book. This is a really fascinating book, and I enjoyed reading it. I wanted to ask about your motivation, first of all, both personally and professionally, for coming to this subject. Of course. In 1999, I visited Israel for the first time, and my grandparents gave me connections uh, to their old friends uh, from communist resistance, who, unlike my grandparents, were deported to Theresienstadt. And as I said, with these 70 and 80-year-old people, and we drove around and ate hummus and drank lemonade, they chatted so animatedly about their old lives in Theresienstadt, how they played soccer, how they fell in love how their friends were deported, how they said goodbye to their parents. Um, What did you do if you did not have toilet paper? And I completely fell down the rabbit hole of this enforced society. Um, Later, I started working on the Jews deported from the Netherlands uh, to the Reisingstadt and realized that I have here a unique case study of society in extremists. So I had both the personal connection to people who I knew and liked and later, as I became a graduate student, I realized that I have a unique situation that I can research also because maybe a bit uh, rare combination. I speak uh, both German, Czech and Dutch, which gives me a really good background uh, to study Theresienstadt in order to research the sources um, uh, firsthand that I didn't have to rely on translations. Um, and maybe the research kind of really brought me to an antithesis to the early conversations I had back in 1999, because I realized that the situation of the young Czech Jews was one of basically an elite, a social elite, and their voices are those that are most frequently heard. And one of the things that drove me was to contextualize the voices of the social elite and contrast them with the elderly, with the so-called foreigners, um, with people who uh, did not experience Theresienstadt as a happy youth, but in a number of other ways. It is not about binaries, uh, but about context. 
And this is what I then did for many, many years. And also something that was really important for me was to encounter to all these people with empathy, not to kind of talk about them with a condescension of a historian who knows it better, although I guess I'm guilty of that as well, but to uh, come to understand and appreciate um, all of them and to do them justice. Yeah, I see this as a, a very deeply empathetic history, and it, it's what drew me um, in my own work on the Holocaust to the subject. I, I wanted you to talk about your gender analysis, first of all. Um, this is really a set of questions about methodology. So um, you mentioned your use of gender and, and sexuality as a, a social category of analysis, but what, what strikes me is how you include these networks of meaning and it encompasses both material things like food as well as the aesthetic worlds of the prison society and in ultimately the victim society. So could you talk about how, how you developed this methodology for the book? Oh, Stephen, you give me far too much credit. I really relied on the classical uh, feminist historiography starting with Joan Scott that shows that we cannot chop apart gender and have, you know, a few pages apart on gender as some Holocaust histories have, you know, prostitution and marriage and divorce. But gender is such a defining category that it transcends all. It is, in fact, a particularly useful way for us to understand any given society and even more um, sexuality. So, for example, to understand the Jewish council and the Jewish functionaries, we have to study... Uh, their designs of masculinity and uh, how they acted, how um, some uh, Jewish functionaries um, had lovers. And not that the point for me was not to titillate the readers and say, look, um, uh, Paul Epstein had a lover in addition to the woman to whom he was married, but to study the fact that he had a lover as a means of comfort, but also um, a position how he could uh, express his uh, power situation because having access to a lover, especially one that is young and attractive, uh, was quite a powerful uh, position. And as I continued studying Theresienstadt, I found over and over that when men and women do different things, um, it or when men and women do the same things, it means very vastly different things, how kinship and love and sexuality and dying and culture was expressed was enormously gendered. And it is often the female position that is seen as salient. Maybe I can share an example of the Czech culture and music. So one of the things that is best known about Theresienstadt and that I strove to contextualize is the music life. Yeah, when we look at Theresienstadt, what people will say will be the propaganda movie, the children. Uh, the children's drawings that uh, many visitors have seen in the Pinka Synagogue in Prague, um, and of course, music and culture life. But one of the things that I strove to show is, yes, the culture life in Theresienstadt was impressive and should be celebrated, but in order to understand it, we have to put it into its social and cultural setting. And part of the setting was an ethnic setting. The people who were deported to Theresienstadt, even though all of them were marked by the Nazis as Jews, did not necessarily create a common Jewish um, society. Rather, Jewishness was always a strategy of demarcation. So for Czech Jews, Theresienstadt confirmed their Czechness. For German Jews, often the fact that they were expelled from Germany and did not belong anymore. And for Jews from the Netherlands, something similar. 
And since the young Czech Jews um, who arrived the, as the first and were also the biggest group in Theresienstadt were the social elite, much of the music and other culture life was Czech coded. And um, one of the things that I found so interesting is how certain modes of Czech culture became coded in Theresienstadt as particularly meaningful and beautiful. So you have uh, productions of Bartered Bride, which is this uh, famous opera by Beatrice Smetana. I say famous with a bit of an irony because <laughs> it's really famous in the Czech Republic. It's a little bit less famous. It's the fam- famous for me. <laughs> for you, I, but, love, I love it. I'm an opera fan, yeah. Well, go there ahead. you go. But, um, you know, it is maybe a little bit less famous uh, than uh, some Mozart pieces, but don't say to the Czechs you were disappointed. <laughs> but... Uh, to go back, you have this whole narrative about the beautiful woman singers who sang beautifully this immensely Czech opera, and the opera was beautiful, so goes the narrative when you unpack it, because it was Czech. And then comes the but. One or two of the particularly famous female opera singers in Theresienstadt were women who either um, were Czech, but their first language was not Czech, but German, so when they spoke Czech, they had an accent. Or even uh, they were actually emigres who came in the 1930s. And then when you look how the survivors recalled these women singing, how they criticized that it was a bit of a sacrilege that these women who were not really Czech would sing Bartered Bride, how they had ridiculous accents, but also were not pretty because they were not young. And they were not Czech. And when you actually look at the hard numbers, often the ages are the same. And at the photographs, people really look not so different from each other. It shows how incredibly normative uh, the national or the ethnic belonging was. But the salience here is in the female figure. It does not apply, say, for the bar singer, uh, someone like Karel Berman, a famous um, uh, uh, bar singer in Theresienstadt. So this is one of the things that I tried to unpack. And it came across over and over and over, be it in something famous uh, like opera singers or in the decisions with whom will the people go on transport, uh, which is the last, uh, the sixth chapter of the book. Right. And I, I want I want to get you to talk about your chapters because there's so much intersectional, intersectional analysis that you offer, I think, in, in many ways, model of... Um, intersectional analysis using gender and age. Um, I'm really struck by your um, focus on the elderly and, and focus on, on people at different ages, youth care, the jobs that they have, the power asymmetries that they have, the asymmetries and hierarchies. So um, this is a two-part question. The first is about age as a component to your analysis, both social and gender and everyday analysis, and then really how you set up your chapters around some of those centerpieces. Uh, I'm wondering, I, I guess this is a sneaky question, but I'm wondering what the centerpiece of the book is, right? Because you you have a lot on organization and administration, and then you get to the heart of the analysis. And if you could begin to talk about your organization for the book. Yeah, let's talk first about organization and then we can go to the first part of the question. If you will remember what you asked, Gwen, I would just get lost because I love talking no about No problem. It. Let's talk about your chapters first. Yeah. You have six chapters and what are they? So I am a really big believer in the inductive method. I did not, I wanted the sources to lead me. I did not want to decide ahead of time what is the story that I'm going to tell because I was trying to change the narrative 
of our understanding of prisoner society in the Holocaust. And therefore, I wanted uh, to try to listen to as many possible voices as possible, hence also the uh, elderly. And at some point during my archival research, and I spent two years in the archives, um, I sat down and did like a kind of preliminary take up of what I have found out so far and let it gel into uh, the chapter structure. I kind of looked at the topics that keep coming up that I believed will be helpful to explain Theresienstadt, but moreover also because, you know, my book does two things, I guess. It offers a modern history of Theresienstadt, but it also offers an analytical history of Holocaust societies per se. Yeah. And um, I believe this um, six-part structure of um, organization in the Jewish Council, uh, the society in the camp, uh, food and hunger, uh, cultural life, um, medicine, uh, and transports to the East is something that can be applicable elsewhere. Maybe not 101, but definitely um, as a topical analysis. And... I would be careful about saying what is the heart of the book because I tried to design the various chapters that it will speak to various readerships and to various historiographies. So say the chapter one, um, there is so much debate on the Jewish councils and also what is actually the role of the Germans, of the Nazis in organizing the uh, Holocaust. And they would have not been able to do all this work without coercing the victims into cooperating. And I also have always been pretty critical of this concept of Jewish collaboration. It's such a charge term. And I guess that's one of the things that I've worked hard to deconstruct in the book is to judge people. Yeah, this is also why I have uh, a mini chapter about Jewish informers and people who volunteer to work for the SS and inform them what is happening. Because I think if my readers need me as an author to tell them the denouncing is wrong, then these readers have a problem that I can't help with. Rather, our task is to understand what does it tell us about prisoner society and what does it tell us about these people and why are these people so hated that even if they survive, they were not allowed to bear testimony. So that's the uh, example on the on the organization yeah. chapter. Um, chapter one, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, for chapter one, because I, you have a lot of focus on um, Jewish pol Jewish police, right? Or Jewish functionaries. So and Jewish uh, functionaries, I, Jewish police in Theresienstadt is relatively unimportant. And one chapter that I wrote after defending is the chapter on medicine that I guess in some ways is the most professionally written chapter because I wrote it already in my job. We have a Center for History of Medicine at Warwick. I have some fabulous colleagues who work on history of medicine and I was able to think about it first, not under the pressure of I need to defend and I need to get a job. Um, but I also spent most time uh, revising the chapter. So had I had I been a little bit quicker, the book would have come out uh, earlier. But as I mentioned it, I hope that these various chapters will be able to read together, but also say historians of medicine will be able to take the chapter on medicine and assign it to the syllabi or also ask, we need to pay attention to society in the Holocaust in order to understand medicine per se. Because one of the things that um, inspire my work is to try to draw the various historiographies outside of Holocaust to pay attention to Holocaust because 
Holocaust history tends to be put a little bit into the corner, something that is fascinating, but not really relevant for overall historiographies. And much is lost by taking it out. And now I can talk about the elderly if you want. Sure. Um, so let, let's talk about the chapters where you're focusing on the elderly. And I guess I would call it the transformation in respect for the elderly, which once had existed in pre-war and, and, and sort of pre-Shoah society, and how, how that's changed in, in Terezin. So what is it like for the elderly? They seem to be at the very lowest level of society. Is that is that correct across the board, or are there specific stories and instances? I know, absolutely. This is the heartbreaking story of the elderly that are a sizable group in Theresienstadt. And um, in May 1942, the Jewish self-administration decided um, that there will be uh, a categorization of food, of food rations, according to the uh, worker status. Hard laborers get the most food, normal workers get uh, medium food, and non-workers um, get the least food. People over 60, if they are women, and over 65, if they are men, no longer have to work. And the food rations are not only the smallest, they also are of the least quality. It's basically just carbohydrates, and it's also food rations that are the easiest to be stolen from. And it leads to the circumstance that among the almost 34,000 people who perished in Theresienstadt, 92% of these 34,000 people were the elderly. You have no other group in Theresienstadt that has even comparably such high mortality. All other groups have mortality around 10% and less. And then when you go over 60, it suddenly jumps from 10 to 90 and uh, one of the things that I uh, did with the help uh, of my father, who is a sociologist and has statistical background, is uh, that I compared the uh, mortality of not only the German and Austrian elderly, because the Jews from Germany and Austria were sent to Theresienstadt largely without their relatives, because the younger German and Austrian Jews were sent directly to Auschwitz or to Lublin, and it's the elderly who are sent uh, to Theresienstadt because one of the functions that Nazis give to Theresien is the um, Altersghetto, the uh, uh, ghetto for the elderly. But um, one of the really shocking things that I found out is that the Czech elderly, whose children and grandchildren are in Theresienstadt as well, whose grandchildren are the guys playing soccer and flirting with pretty girls, um, they have the same mortality. You don't even have a difference, really, uh, between how long it takes to these people to pass away, if they pass away in Theresienstadt. However, still, the elderly, and this is so remarkable, not only the Czech Jews, but you have the German and Austrian and um, other, uh, but these are the biggest groups, elderly who manage to fit in, who manage to learn to some Czech, Often it's people who have Gentile relatives who sent them parcels so they don't completely depend on the starvation rations and who develop to be these uh, incredibly observant chroniclers. And uh, they talk with great understanding and humor and also sharp eye about what is happening in Theresienstadt. They buy into what I call the master narrative of Theresienstadt, of what it means to be a prisoner in Theresienstadt. Um, they are so critical about the misdistribution of food but they are also very proud of the things that most people in the prisoner community uh, considered 
beautiful and meaningful, say, uh, the uh, treatment of the young children or uh, the cultural life. But then you will also have differences. And that brings us back to our beloved battered bride, because for the German elderly battered bride is, you know, like kind of a better operette. And uh, for the Czech Jews, it's this immense piece of meaningful cultural life. I guess we could have today this discussion about Hamilton, um, the musical. If you are not American, you know, I went with my wife to see Hamilton and she almost fled in half of it. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't watch that. I, I wouldn't endure it. I, I'm afraid. Um, maybe yeah. maybe you are uh, maybe you are no. cousin of my wife. It's, it's it's not for me, but I guess I'm too hybrid, so <laughs> um I gotta idea, ask, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I no, I've got I've got to ask of so many questions for you about your your reading of the sources because that you know, you mentioned food and you you have unbelievable sources for this book. Um sources in nine languages. And um you mentioned, of course, the, the challenge to this master sort of master Zionist narrative, I'd call it, of of the melting pot idea of the ghetto. And I think that's so important historiographically and methodologically. So I, I'm wondering in your reading of the sources, how how different it is both age-wise among the elderly inmates, um, in talking about things like toilet service and stuff like that. And and then for young Zionists, right? Because I mean this is in many ways, as I as I would read it with the symbolic interactionism a la Irving Goffman, it, it seems in many ways like a middle class ghetto. It, is that is that too much of a generalization? Because there are social elites and the social elites are, are largely Czech Jews, right? Well, Stephen, thank you so much for saying that because the old title of the dissertation on which the book is based was Laboratory of Middle Class. And uh, that went then down because it was seen as a little bit maybe too flippant. But um, this is a very middle class and upper middle class story. And for the elderly, one of the things that is the elephant in the room, and I'm really one of the things that I really try to do in the book is say, people, look, we have an elephant in the room. You have these amazing histories about the making of Jewish German and Jewish Austrian middle class, the people born between 1860 and 1880, who, you know, uh, listen to Heinrich von Kleist and uh, read Fontane and uh, uh, subscribe to Bergelina Tagesblatt and whatnot. And then these stories basically end in 1933. But these stories do not end in the 30s with emigration to America or with deportation. These stories go on in Theresienstadt, where many of them are deported, and they do perish. But in the months and years before they die, they become these chroniclers of Theresienstadt. And one of the things you can do with their diaries and letters, and in very few cases, memoirs, is you can read them in order to understand Theresienstadt. And I do that. But you can also read them and say, what does it tell us about this classical generation um, of assimilated German Jews and the fact how quick they were to adapt, how observant they were, how critical they were, but also what they kept from the old class um, is, I find, really telling and interesting the fact how they thought about gender and about sexuality, how they observe young people among themselves, but also not so young people 
having uh, non-marital intimacy and how they talk about it, how they think about soccer, um, that pretty much everybody loves soccer in today's instead, but not the German Jews. Um, that we have these amazing histories of sports. I think you interviewed Joanna Mellis recently, uh, or you are going to interview her soon. Um, and uh, we don't pay attention to what meant which sport went to whom. So Czechoslovakia soccer or football is incredibly meaningful and it goes beyond middle class or beyond working class. But the fact that the German elderly in Theresienstadt really did not care so much about soccer and the way how you find it out is simply it is missing in the testimonies. And that's one of the things that I tried to do is to pay attention not only what is spoken about, but also what is missing. And you need to pay attention to it as a, as author is incredibly, um, is incredibly salient. And I guess that goes to the bigger question of how to do the source work because yeah, what I did. That's my question. That's that's my big question for you. I, I've I've seen yeah. so few books with with this many sources. Could you could you talk about that? Because you had to do a lot of sorting, I would imagine, in all of these years. Yeah, thank you. So somewhere in the beginning, uh, in two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand five, um, when I was developing the proposal, I sat down with my good friend Andre Angrig, who ironically is a great historian of perpetrators. He wrote about the Einsatzgruppe D. He wrote about the uh, about the Commando One Thousand Five. But it was he who, in the beginning, gave me some of the best advice. What is it that I'm actually trying to do here? And I sat down and did a um, systematic list of all big or important collections. Uh, of archives that have material on Theresienstadt because there is not a central archive and there are also not two or three central archives. Exactly, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah. For our readers at the end of the book, you have the the full list. So um, that's really- I hope I did not forget anything. And I knew I will have quite a while in Yad Vashem in Israel. I knew I will have a while in Prague at the uh, Prague Jewish Museum and also at the Theresien Memorial but I also spent a week in Copenhagen at the uh, Danish Jewish Museum. I spent a one month or two months in London at the Wiener Library, at the British Library. I spent um, three or four months at the USHMM. I spent a couple of months uh, at the Lobeck Institute in New York. I guess the one archive I did not go to uh, were the Australian interviews. I spent um, weeks and weeks listening to the uh, Visual History Archive, uh, the so-called Spielberg uh, interviews. I listened to the fortune of interviews from the 1980s. And something that I tried to combine, in addition to making the systematic list of what is out there that I need to visit, is that I always had in mind whose voices are missing and who do I already have overrepresented. Because you kind of have two levels when you write a book like this. You're trying to find out the real history of Theresienstadt, how was everything organized, how did the Jewish self-administration work, who cooked where and what food was cooked and how did the corruption work and all these like nerdy questions. Because I know the book will be read by historians who understand Theresienstadt well, who may look for something that is missing. But then there will be a bigger audience of people who don't really care to know how exactly the coffee was cooked but want to find out something about the prisoner society. And I wanted to cater, or the ambition was to write for both of these uh, groups. So as I kept kind of the mental tap on whose voices I have, 
eventually you do not need the 150th testimony of a young Czech Jewish man or a young Czech communist woman. But you think, why don't I have any diaries of elderly Austrian Jews? And this is the moment when you realize you have actually lots of diaries of various other groups, but there is only one diary of an Austrian Jew that is Camilla Hirsch and um, a dear friend of mine, Alexander Garbarini, who wrote uh, the book that I guess inspired me the most, um, A Numbered Days, um, is an eminent uh, historian of the Holocaust and Jewish history of the Holocaust, but also of the diaries. And um, I contacted her and said, Ali, do you realize that we actually have almost no Austrian Jewish diaries from the Holocaust? And she said, it's actually only no that you mention it, that comes to it. And of course, these various sources written at different points and also to different end um, give us a different perspective. And it was always my uh, aim that I contrast these, listen to the various perspectives or pay attention to these various perspectives and think about what is the bigger picture that it gives us. Because I did not only want to give these fragmentary views, but to kind of try to push the story what is the biggest story that it gives us when you have, you know, the um, 80-year-old Kamila Hirsch, who sees the relationships from one point, you have um, a Danish kid, and then you have the young Czech Zionist, and you bring these three stories together, but rather than just putting them together, put them together and ask, what is the bigger story here? And that's something that I aim yeah, yeah. to deliver. Yeah, yeah. and I, I wanted to ask you if you could share some stories with, with our listeners here at New Books, because you have a chapter, for instance, I'll, I'll just pick one. You have a chapter on medicine and illness. And I, I'm struck by your three-dimensional characters um, in the way that you talk, not just about the categories of, of age and gender, but specific treatments, disease, enteritis, which was actually, I forget the Czech name for it, but it it was, it was actually called like the terazine disease. Um, enteritis is, is what you have when you have novovirus. Like you, gee, I had novovirus two or three years ago and um, it's, it's a banal, very unpleasant disease uh, with diarrhea, um, palpitations, high fever. You can have fainting spells. And um, when you or I have it, you will have two or three unpleasant days. You will feel sorry for yourself, lie down in bed, uh, watch lots of Netflix and ask your partner to be perfectly nice to you. And then it's over. If you are in Teresian and you are our age, then it gets quite unpleasant because you don't have a washing machine to wash your clothes and you don't have someone to send you around and obviously you don't have Netflix. Um, Sorry? Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's quite dangerous. There's no, there's no cure. So, I mean, well, what is, what was the med, what was the medical care like? Because it, it was quote unquote free, right? I mean, there was, um, there were a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses that you talk about. What, what is, what are some examples would you say? Well, medical treatment? finish up about enteritis. It's, um, it is a banal disease that then gets gets deadly if you're elderly, if you have heart problems, and if you're malnu- um, if you're already uh, in a state of malnutrition. And most of the elderly who die in Theresienstadt die on diseases connected to malnutrition. The healthcare in Theresienstadt, especially after the first year, is surprisingly amazing for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, the, there is a lot of Jewish doctors because... Um, 
Jews were overrepresented among the physicians in 1930s uh, century Europe. Second, uh, the Jewish doctors um, had a very good connection to the Jewish self-administration. In fact, they were part of the Jewish self-administration. They were able to leverage uh, the SS into being scared of the fact that the, what, what the Germans saw as the uh, um, Jewish epidemic could uh, infect the surrounding because just around the corner outside of Terezin, you had a Wehrmacht hospital and two or three kilometers away is Little Mieritzel Light Meritz, which was a regional uh, um, uh, capital of, of, of Zudetengau. Um, and the Jewish doctors were able to say, we need to have all these medications and all these special tools so that we keep the epidemics in check. Um, and they were able indeed to keep most of the epidemics in check. So if you got sick in Theresienstadt and you were the right age and you got sick in the right year and you had the correct disease, you would very probably be treated. But if you were sick with enteritis, it would be categorized as an unimportant disease. And um, if you are elderly and in a state of malnutrition, you are probably going to die. But if you are elderly and are sick, say, with ileus, then you will be treated and you will be operated on by one of the top doctors. And if you make it to the hospital on time and you will be operated on and afterwards you will get actually quite a good medical support, well-trained nurses and reasonably seen good food. And those people, those elderly who um, live long enough to keep a diary, you see how, um, yeah, very much in contrast, the medical care is that they received uh, if they make it to the hospital. But in order to make it to the hospital, they need to have a disease that has been categorized uh, as, as an important uh, disease. So I've been following the last year with the pandemic this is kind of a real curiosity because the discussion of triage and uh, who deserves to have healthcare and who not is something that I am kind of painfully familiar with. Um, and yeah. uh, of course, how how, how, do, how would you relate to that from past to present? I, I'm I'm leading to my other questions to take us out of the the one ghetto, but I mean, how how do you understand? this because it, it's so often an asymmetrical relationship and, and access and power really matter who gets what and where and why, right? Um, so you mean, how do I understand this today or in the ghetto? Well, I would say in the ghetto first, because yeah. I, I mean, it, you you cover endlessly, I think, these, these asymmetries, who has mm-hmm. access to treatment. Can you say a few words about how, how you would read that from present to past and past to present? Yeah. So um, uh, you have very different access to the most important resources in Theresienstadt for food and for accommodation and the elderly. And then the non-Czech Jews, who are often categorized as foreigners, have a little bit worse access to food and have a little bit worse access to accommodation, especially in the first year, 1942, when the ghetto is most overpopulated. And if you are, if, if the prisoners are 80 or 90 years old and do not have any friends who could explain to them how things are working and are accommodated on the fourth floor in attics without any electricity or running water, uh, this is basically a death sentence, which is one of the explanations why the mortality of the elderly is so high 
if however they are able to survive this time and uh, get a little bit better accommodation then they can be able to get a job to uh, uh, widen their social networks and to have better access to healthcare. You have younger so-called foreign Jews, um, say, um, uh, what's her last name? Um, uh, Alice from Hanova, who becomes one of the nurses. And she has it a little bit difficult because she is for quite a while seen as German, but uh, she falls in love um, with uh, a Czech man who then introduces her to the correct people and to the correct friends. And through him, she has access to the cultural events that otherwise would be inaccessible to her as a foreigner. Not necessarily because nobody would tell her about it, but even though all of these things are supposedly for free, the things that are highly in demand, say the particularly well-liked doctors, or the performances of the bartered bride are then sold on the black market. And you can only buy them if you have goods that are seen as particularly valuable. Say it, um, pork lard or cucumbers that you stole when you worked in, um, in, in agriculture and the outside. So some of the so-called big shots uh, in uh, Theresienstadt, um, such as uh, the Jewish Council, are not actually always able to get... Uh, access to the much-desired cultural productions, but the people who work as shepherds um, outside or work uh, in the agricultural fields and harvest tomatoes bring in two kilos of tomatoes and are able to buy tickets for yeah. themselves and their darlings. That's really, uh, that's really, in, that's really interesting. And, and this, these extended kinship networks that you describe as well. So that there are families. I mean, there are people who fall in love and people who date. Um, and, and both the homosexual and heterosexual component to this, which I think is, is a remar- remar- remarkable thing that you cover in your analysis. Could, could you could you say a few words about those those internal networks, if they are internal and, and how they persist and maybe even among survivor communities, how, how they last beyond um, mm-hmm. beyond the ghetto? Yeah. I think kinship is here really um, a useful term coming from anthropology because it's not always biological family and it's very much according to generation. You have people of the age of 20, 25 or 15 who really feel more at home within uh, their ideological group, be it Zionists or communists or the people with whom they work um, in their work unit because there is an overall work duty for everyone between teenagers up to 60 or 65 years of age. And yes, these people often stay in touch with their parents. But when you look at the language, and it's often so interesting to see the metaphors they use or um, the emotional level of the language, how closely they speak about their friends from the communist group or from the Zionist group. And then they speak about the parents, but it is a little bit less important or it's important in a different way. So generation, and I, I think we have touched on that already, is incredibly important uh, in the concentration camps uh, because the experience, uh, how you survive, how you experience the ghetto or concentration camp is so different uh, according to your health status and to how old you are, but also if you are a parent or if you are childless. And um, I guess the proof in the pudding, the moment when you decide who is really your family is in the moments with who are you going to share accommodation is who do you share your food at the end of the day? Do you go to eat with your friends? Or do you go over to your parents or to your uh, partner and eat with them? 
And uh, then I guess most importantly, with who do you volunteer to go on transport? With your friends, with your partner, yeah. with your parents? Yeah, yeah. And and in that in the last wave, obviously, um, this is the last ghetto, but in, in the wave of transports, what happens to the kinship networks then? Um, so with the liquidation of the ghetto and, and perhaps really, this is my other question, the, in comparison to other ghettos, um, which have already been liquidated like Wuch and, and Warsaw. So what, what is it that happens? First of all, this is a factual question about tourism during the transport. And, and then how does this compare in the network of, of other ghettos? Mm-hmm. Terezinstadt is really literally the last ghetto. It's the one ghetto that is never closed down. And it's liberated actually one day after the after the end of the war on the 9th of May, uh, 1945. It's when the Red Army actually stops in Terezinstadt and says, like, uh, you are free. But the autumn before, in fall 44. The Nazis deported two thirds of the of the prisoners in Theresienstadt. It's a particularly heartbreaking moment because it's after D Day, and the prisoners in Theresienstadt started believing that they are going to experience the liberation um, while in Theresienstadt. And first, the Nazis deported, especially the young people, and uh, it is only certain groups that are protected until the end. Women who work in a particular uh, forced labor factory where they split Mika, uh, but also the elderly. So it's largely the younger people who are deported. Uh, also in fall 44, um, it is the SS organizing the transports, no longer the Jewish functionaries. So the old rule that families are going to be deported together no longer holds, which um, really shows how heartbreaking it is when people are sent to the unknown uh, without their loved ones. But some 10 or 15,000 people stay behind in Theresienstadt. And this is an interesting moment because when you compare it to Wuch or to Warsaw or to Białystok or to Minsk, eventually in these places, people realize what has happened to the people who were sent uh, to Treblinka or to Chemno or elsewhere. And they realize they too are going to be killed unless they somehow make it outside. And this knowledge pretty much never arrives to Theresienstadt, even though the writing is there. And I show how the inmates develop complex psychological strategies to avoid understanding, because the knowledge is so horrible. And even in uh, winter 1944-45, when uh, Jews from Slovakia were sent to Theresienstadt, and these are people who experienced refugees from Auschwitz, who told them the absolute hard knowledge what is happening. This is the famous uh, Verba Entlanik report. And when the Slovaks come, they again, for the 10th or 15th time, tell the people in Theresienstadt what is happening in Auschwitz. And yet again, the people in Theresienstadt kind of refuse to believe it. But when then towards the end of the war, the Nazis start building some mysterious construction site, um, we do not know why, possibly because Theresienstadt alongside this Wagen-Belsen and Mauthausen was one of the destinations for the dismarches that maybe the Nazis planned to actually kill kill, uh, the people from the dismarches in Theresienstadt among other uh, places. But we do not know that. And this is the moment when the victims in Theresienstadt, who so far received all these news about what is happening in the East and refuse to believe it, look at these construction sites and say, we are going to be murdered. And I offer some 
uh, thoughts about why this was so. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. And um, I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit in, in doing both Holocaust history and historiography. Um, what sort of things you would like to see moving forward um, with new Holocaust research and, and particularly with your field, which I, I find so fascinating on, on both queer studies and gender and sexuality. Um, could, could you talk about that? I mean, it, it, this is, you know, sort of like the lessons from your book question, but it, the big takeaway points from your book, what, what kind of research and research methodologies could we develop mm-hmm. from, from this, yeah. from your work? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I'm a big believer in gender history and recognizing that men have a meaningful gender as well. Um, And we get really nowhere with reducing gender to women's history only and telling it from the testimonies of women only. Uh, Gender identity is always uh, a relational um, uh, identity. So if you write about women, we need to pay attention to men and vice versa, but also this is where kind of queer studies offer us some really important insights. Um, I have still this ambition to take Holocaust studies out of its corner and to place it into the wider network um, of general history, but also to try to invite Holocaust historians to kind of see they feel this an exception. There is a bit of an assumption that there was something particularly different about Holocaust and therefore we cannot measure it by the theories and methodologies of oral history. And I think that's a horrible mistake that uh, keeps us from some important insights. Um, I think sexuality is a really salient field where we can observe much about mentality and rules and culture. I mean, to quote Dagmar Herzog, in sexuality have this much of muchness. So I guess the challenge here is to back away from a certain shyness or stigma of sexuality, but also from the tendency to titillate and to say, ah, sex, so interesting, but rather to say, what does it mean that women who used to be posh and upper middle class and would go once a week to the Berlin Opera are selling sex in order to support their dying grandmother? Um and uh, that is that is hard. And um, one of the things that I do want to invite uh, people after me is first to take the stigma out of the stigma, but to then also to think, what are we going to do with the stigma? The other challenge is to try to see the histories that we are writing, especially if they have been told from kind of narrow point of view, to put the very many perspectives together in order to get representative histories. And this is so important also from the ethical point of view, because we look here at people, almost all of whom have been slaughtered. And then you have really an ethical responsibility uh, to bring their voices uh, to light. I mean, so much has been written on Czech Jewish history, and it's a history of elites and Max Brod and Kafka and you know, I, have I agree. This, I agree with I you. Let us come and tell us about some random, uh, you know, um, uh, lady who sells in a newspaper shop who will never reach the phaeton in the Prague attack blood. Does she not deserve to have a history? And you know, of course, Stephen, I am her pioneer. I want her to have history. I want her to be front and center. I want her to nameless people who were not intellectuals to be put alongside and on par with the intellectuals because they all are history and we should not canonize who is important and who is not. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think of, you know, the work of, of Mark Cornwall and Andreas Pretzel and in the, the edited volume by Scott Spector and Dagmar Herzog. And I mean, there's so much more that can be done on, on gay culture and gay subcultures. And I, you know, I see this too in the stigma that persists in societies suffering extreme violence. You know, I mean, if you could take the work of someone like Christian Gerlach and you could take the work of, of your attention to minutia, um, there, there would be some amazing directions in Holocaust history. And, and especially I would say in Central European history. But that's putting words in your mouth. So. Well, I'm very fond of Christian Delach, and he has been really influential for my thinking. So I, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, um, so we're winding down now, uh, and I want to make sure that you don't get away. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I'd like you to talk, if you can, about books that you might recommend or articles you might recommend if you'd like to do that. Um, and of course, about your current projects and current research, what, mm -hmm. what sorts of things you're interested in and what you're doing right now. Yeah. So dear readers, uh, dear listeners, I want to recommend to you one older book and one new book that uh, were really uh, gave me a lot of joy reading. One I already mentioned, Numbered Days by Alexander Garbarini. Um, it remains to me one of the most beautiful books uh, ever written it's full of really important um, insight, often really complex ones where you get after months and years of thinking and not cutting edges and not going for easy solutions, but in a very beautiful and elegant style. And uh, in terms of uh, new books, I very much enjoyed uh, Emma Kubis' uh, Political Survivors where she writes about courageous men and women who came back uh, from the concentration camps in 1945 and what lessons they drew from surviving, but also the compromises they were forced to take and how it often breaks their hearts, but how they go on. And it's a, it's a story I saw a little bit with my own grandparents. But Kubi tells it for Western Europeans. And I quite like this project because it kind of contributes to our realization how artificial the East-West difference is and how similar the post-war lives of the, of the survivors of the concentration camps were, but how also they were shaped in the countries where they chose to live after after the war, which is, I guess, something I try to show for the Theresienstadt survivors, where it really depended where you moved after the war, how you came to remember and make sense of your incarceration. My current project kind of draws on some of the things uh, that uh, piqued my interest uh, during, the, uh, during this book, namely the uh, boundaries of what is narratable. And I was really curious, what are the things that um, are somehow seen as too problematic to speak about, be it the informers, uh, people who engaged in same-sex intimacy, um, people whose mixed marriages uh, fell apart, or men and women who sold or bartered sex um, uh, for resources. So in particular, uh, some four years ago, I started working on queer Holocaust history, and um, this is a fascinating field, also a difficult one, uh, because when I started, it was kind of that the colleagues who work on LGBT history or queer history uh, during Nazi Germany, they kind of looked at the persecution of the gay uh, men and lesbian women who were persecuted because of their sexual orientation. But 
uh, Jewishness never played a role. And for Holocaust historians, it was as if all Holocaust victims um, were heterosexual. And I go after the intersection that is there and I ask, why has this intersection been silenced? And even though you have Holocaust survivors who either uh, identify it as gay and lesbian or engage in same-sex intimacy, be it in coerced or not so coerced conditions, this is a story that has been largely erased. And if you find it, usually it's by third-person testimonies that are often quite homophobic. And I look at this homophobia, I looked at these erased stories of sexual barter, but also romantic love, and I ask what it all means. And what it means that uh, survivors or victims of the Holocaust has been uh, brought to silence because this is not just an erased history. This is an erased history of genocide victims. And exactly. if you're that part yeah. of the genocide, you will not have a grave. No one will remember your name. And if then you're not even allowed to be remembered because you're seen as too stigmatized to be remembered, then really you have been erased as historical subject. And that is the ultimate horrible thing that can happen and I guess that's also the political dimension of my work on queer Holocaust history. Wow. Um, thank you so much. And, and, and that answer summarizes um, my dreams, many of them for, for, for the field. Um, it's really been an honor and a privilege um, to talk to you, Anna, uh, here at the New Books Network. I am Stephen Siegel, and I'm your host on the podcast. We are on the channels for New Books Genocide Studies, New Books Eastern European Studies and New Books, Gender and Sexuality. We've been joined today by Professor Anna Haikova, and she is the author of a new book called The Last Ghetto, an Everyday History of Theresienstadt, just published, just out with Oxford University Press in 2020. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today. Thank you so much.